If you have your Bibles, flip to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. As we continue our series, These Truths Are True. Monday night um, ended what we like to call March Madness. Any basketball fans in here? Anybody willing to stay up that late on Monday night? Still recovering today? Uh, March Madness has always been a fun tradition in my, my home growing up. Had some sweet memories with grandparents going to Mississippi, getting to watch the tournament from the time our kids were young. We filled out brackets um, together, which is always fun when your two-year-old beats you at your picks. Um, as a staff, we've done brackets with our families and stuff. Um, it's always a fun season, um, primarily because anybody can win, right? Because nobody really knows, hence the name March Madness. Well, I love basketball. Grew up playing basketball, and this year, for the first time, all three of my kids played basketball. Um, played down at Harrison, their, their basketball youth league, and had a, had a blast. I had the opportunity of coaching my youngest, Bryce's team, who is um, in first grade. And when you coach basketball to young kids, you quickly realize that it is probably one of the most complicated games around. Because think about it. You, when you give a kid a basketball, you tell them all you got to do is put the ball in the basket. But you can't run with it. You have to dribble it. And you can't dribble it with two hands. You have to dribble it with one hand. And once you stop dribbling it, you can't dribble it again until you pass the ball to someone else. And then they can do what we just told you you could do. And then you can run down. And if you get open, they can give it to you and it all starts over again. And you're going to do that again. And oh, by the way, what seemed pretty easy in practice all of, a sudden, all of a sudden becomes a little more difficult because there's going to be five other first graders on the other side trying to take it from you. See, basketball, when you watch March Madness and you watch college basketball and you recognize the skill and the complexity of the game, what you realize is there is a, there is a rule in basketball that is so small that we don't even talk about it or acknowledge it it has to be brought up when somebody begins the game. And once you learn it, it becomes so ingrained and it's part of the game that you forget it's even there. But if you did not have this one rule in basketball, the entire game would change. It's the rule of a pivot. Because when you pick up the ball, you can dribble walking down. But once I pick it up, I can establish my pivot foot. Which means once I establish my pivot foot, I can go in 360 degrees as long as my foot stays in one place. Now, i trying to teach a first grader. Now, you can't do this and then this and then this. That's called walking. So a pivot foot means you keep it in one place. But think about it. The pivot foot, being able to pivot in basketball, allows you to go from a dead-end play to being able to avoid a defender, find an open man, and continue the game. And if you were to look back at the national championship game on Monday night and just count the number of times someone pivots, you'd go, that's dumb. It just happens all the time. Because pivoting is essential to the game of basketball. But you see, pivot, it's not just a pivot foot. We look at pivotal plays, right, throughout a game. When I, if you have YouTube TV and um, I go back and I watch a, a game, it gives me an option to watch the game three ways. Start from the beginning, go live, or catch up through the pivotal moments. They recognize that, hey, the game, the whole game doesn't matter as much as these individual moments where the game pivots. 
Throughout history, every day is significant, but every day is not the same. We have pivotal dates, pivotal times in history where things changed, and we have a prior to that date and a after that date reality. Think about it. July 4th, 1776. What happened? Yeah, I went from basketball to history. You guys are still trying to catch up on that pivot. <laughs> the Declaration of Independence, right? Our country changed. Our lives today are different because of that day. What about December 7th, 1941? Pearl Harbor. Our world changed that day. October 26th, 1953. Sonny Lawler birthday. <laughs> Everything changed. On these dates, on these dates, things change, right? There's pivotal moments. There are things when things, dates, there are times in a game and in life and in history where things change in your life and in my life. There are moments that you look back on and you go, I remember that phone call. I remember that job offer. I remember that argument. I remember that relationship. I remember, and you fill in the blank. What are some of the most pivotal moments in your life? Just think about that for a second. What are some of the most pivotal moments in your life? When things changed, they can change for the good, they can change for the worse. But there are moments when things changed. You see, as followers of Jesus, we recognize the importance of Jesus and his death on the cross. And this week, as we step into Holy Week, as we move towards Easter, we know that what happened in, the, in this next week leading to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is significant. But sometimes it becomes so common, it becomes something we just recognize and we talk about and we acknowledge that maybe we don't recognize and realize and feel the weight of how much pivoted on that one week, specifically that one week day when Jesus died. You see, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the crowds cheering and proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna. You can, what we know now is that, that there was going to be a significant pivot that week that led from that crowd welcoming him to that crowd calling to crucify him. You see, Jesus' life was divided in into two parts. It was before the cross and after the cross in his mission here on earth. And Paul, in writing the New Testament, again and again comes back to this. There was a moment in my life before Jesus and there was life after Jesus. You see, everything hinged on Jesus for Paul. Everything hinges on Jesus for us. And remembering both halves of Paul's story allowed him to stay anchored into the reality of who God is and what he had called him to live for. Today, as we continue our study of the truths that we believe to be true, we're going to look at a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians. And I pray these verses will encourage you like they've encouraged me. We're going to look at two verses and we're going to look at two people whose lives changed, pivoted on their encounter with Jesus and the cross. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Colossians 1. We're going to start in verse 21 and verse 22. It says this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Did you see the pivot? Do you see the pivot that Paul makes here? 
verse 21 pivots on verse 22 because verse 21 says, once you were, but verse 22 says, but now you are. There's a change, and this is a, a framework that Paul comes back to again and again in his writings, and we see throughout Scripture, before Christ and after Christ. You see, once you were. Every great fairy tale or story begins with a line what? Once upon a time. And every great fairy tale or story ends with, and they lived yeah, you've never seen a story that says once upon a time they lived happily ever after. Like there's no need for a story, right? The formula for stories, for fairy tales, that we, the books that we read and the movies that we watch is that there is once upon a time something good is there or something is lost or somebody is in need of rescue and then a rescuer comes, rescues them, overcomes the odds and obstacles and then brings them to living happily ever after. Paul begins in verse 21 with once you were saying there was a beginning to your story and mine. Actually, there's a beginning to every human story and it was once you were. Once you were what? Once you were alienated from God and your enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You see, it is for this reason that Paul constantly refers back to our standing before Jesus. Because the temptation is to make it seem easier than it was for Jesus to rescue us and to save us. This is extremely true over the years for me. Subconsciously, oftentimes, sometimes consciously, I have come before God believing that it was somehow easier for God to save me than it was for me to save that guy. Because, I mean, I wasn't that bad and it wasn't, I didn't screw up that much. So I needed a little less forgiveness than that person. And that's, that's simply a lie. Because what Paul says in verse 21 is that we were alienated from God and enemies with, from, with him in our minds through our evil behavior. You see, the natural pull is to minimize how much we need saving. But Paul comes back again and again to say, no, let's maximize the need of your saving, recognizing how the only one who could do it was Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses this same framework and he goes a little more pointedly right at us because we don't come from the Jewish heritage. And so he says, hey, the stack, deck was stacked even more against us. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, once again, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, who you once, who once, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once again, we see the same pivot. You were, but now in Christ you are. You were, but now, because of Christ, you are. All of history pivots at the cross of Jesus. When we stop and reflect on the cross, we see two realities come crashing together. Our desperate need for saving and God's incredible love that saved us. The cross is the intersection of our greatest need and God's deepest love. 
Think about the words of a couple old hymns that are probably familiar to many of us. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The same framework is brought into these words. Once were, now am. So hopelessly lost were we that Paul writes, you were without hope, without God, and without hope in this world. Last uh, Friday, we were um, going to take a trip. We were, uh, Danielle's family is up in Indiana. We're going to drive up to Indiana. Her parents are going to drive up there with us, and we're going to visit some family. And um, the parents are coming over, so I take our, our car, and I pull it out in the driveway. And I'm packing the car, and her parents get there, and they get their stuff in the car. And if you have young kids, you know how this works. You get in the car, and someone's like, ah, my gosh, I just thought about it. I should probably go to the bathroom. And you run back in. And then someone's like, ah, I just realized I forgot something. And runs back in. So we're all in there. I'm like, all right, is everybody in the car? Is everybody good? Yes. All right, let's go. Car wouldn't start. Like, not like it tried to start. Like, the car would just decided, I'm not even going to try. Like, it didn't even turn over. Like, we have the, a van, right, and the doors are mechanical, right? The doors couldn't even open. Like, it was like, yep, you are without hope, young man. <laughs> and you are not going to Indiana. We pull out the, 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 the car and get it, get it jumped. At that moment, I had my map app up the other day for walking somewhere. So I punched in Indiana, and it just ironically saw that it would take six days and 22 hours to walk to Indiana. <laughs> So at that rate, from the time on Friday to now, we would have just arrived in Indiana if we had started walking in that moment. We were without hope. Like the trip was dead. And it wasn't like needs a little help or maybe you should try a little harder. It was this will not happen. Dead is dead. No hope and without God in the world, alienated from God, means we are not in need of a little help. We are in need of the only help that can save us and bring life. And that is Jesus. Paul says, without Jesus, we have no hope. You and I are alienated from God, enemies of God in our minds, living out evil behavior. The gap between where we once were in relation to God also reminds us of God's great love for us that would take us from that space to what Paul gives us in verse 22. Because as I thought this week about this car battery In that moment, was I any more in need of my battery working than any other time? No. I just became acutely aware of how dependent I was on that battery. (laughs) And what's amazing is when something like that happens, for the rest of the trip, when we'd start the car, we were like, hey, it starts. (laughs) You don't have an appreciation for a car starting until you recognize what it's like for it not to start, for it to be dead. Y'all, for us to embrace life that we've been given, we have to stay rooted to the fact that how dead we were before Jesus. When we recognize how dead we are, when we catch a glimpse and a taste of the life that he's giving us, it should cause great celebration because we recognize, hey, I'm not dead. I'm alive. I have life. You see, flip over to verse 22. 
It hinges, it pivots on verse 22, and Paul says, but now, but now, once you were, past tense, but now, present tense, he, Jesus, has, God has reconciled you by Jesus Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Look at what he says. I have reconciled you. Reconciled, you are made right. Through the physical death of Jesus. Now, this is significant. In the earlier part of Colossians, Paul makes a case and describes who Jesus is and the supremacy of Christ. And one of the things he emphasizes is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Because there was a prevailing idea being passed around those days that it wasn't, Jesus really wasn't a physical Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. He is a physical Jesus. He lived, he breathed, he died, and he rose from the dead. So when Paul says you were reconciled by Christ's physical body, he's directly attacking something that was undermining the legitimacy of what Christ had done. The only way that we become alive is not through a, something that looked like Jesus, a physical Jesus, but the very physical nature of Jesus, the incarnation of coming, living, dying, and rising from the dead. That is what reconciles us. And he says, we're holy, we're set apart. Now, a lot of times we think of holy as something in the future, but the reality is we think of saints. You hear the word saints. You think of these dead people and the churches are named after and people uh, are at times people pray to. Paul addresses the church in Colossae as saints. Why? Because that is who we are in Christ. You are reconciled, you are holy, you are a saint. Therefore, you are without blemish, which means you are perfect before God and you are free from accusation. How could someone accuse you if you are reconciled wholly and without blemish? There's nothing to say. Therefore, you and I are free from accusation. All four of these things have different meanings, but essentially the same concept. Paul is saying, now, because of Christ, you and I stand faultless before the throne. Faultless. That was not the reality you experienced before the cross. You once were is very a far cry from who you are now. And throughout the New Testament, we are reminded again and again of our standing in the present tense before God through Christ. Just check out these couple reminders. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no, no one can accuse you because there's nothing to condemn you for. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Therefore, nothing can come before us that God has not and will not overcome. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in question whether he wins. It's assured that he wins. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once again, adjective after adjective after adjective describing our standing before God as chosen, royal, holy, God's special possession. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. There's been a pivot for you and I to move from death to life because of what Jesus has done. You see, the gospel in its simplicity comes down to a physical Jesus dying a real death to give humanity life. Let's be honest. Religion can get pretty complicated, but Jesus comes to make everything pretty simple. It comes down to a pivot of you going from death to life. You and I going from once who we once were 
to who we now are. Everything pivots on Jesus. Every human story can be divided into two parts. I once was or am, but now I am. I once was, but now I am. So what do we do with Jesus? Well, as we come into this Easter week and we're moving towards celebrating the empty tomb on, on Sunday, there's two characters in the Easter story that have always intrigued me because we don't know a whole lot about them. But I've got to believe that that one day, when they think of pivotal moments in their life, that one day, that Good Friday, goes down as the single most pivotal moment in their lives. I've got to believe that their lives were dramatically different as a result of their encounter with Jesus in the cross. You see, the first person that I think of that intrigues me is it was, absolutely, it was in desperate need of saving. Like he was without hope. He had no hope of living. He was actually scheduled to die. His punishment was justified and he was given a second chance on life. It's a name that you and I recognize, but probably a name we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about. It's a guy named Barabbas. See, in Luke 23, 18, we get a glimpse of him. It says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release us Barabbas. Remember, Pilate is conflicted. He doesn't want to sentence Jesus to die, so he comes up with a plan. He goes, I release a prisoner. So they would not want Barabbas released. He was accused of insurrection and murder. They don't want him. They obviously would rather have this guy, so I'll make, an, I'll make a plea. I'll give them a choice, and surely they'll choose to let Jesus go free, and it backfires. Because the crowd say, no, 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 we crucified Jesus. We want Barabbas who was a man who'd been thrown in prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus. And if you skip down to verse 25, he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now stop for a moment. Think about Barabbas. He's in prison. He's killed somebody. He knows how his story is going to end. He hears a raucous crowd outside. Who knows what he could hear? Who knows how far away he actually was? Probably he was pretty close. Probably he could hear. Whether he could hear all of it was doubtful. What he could probably hear was this one word being used again and again and again and again, which was crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He hears the footsteps in the prison and he's brought out of his cell in front of a raucous crowd demanding for blood. And then suddenly he recognizes he's free. you imagine him standing in the streets as a crowd moves out following Jesus to Calvary going, wait a second, I was dead, yet I, I'm alive. I knew how my story would end, but now that ending has been erased. That ending has been changed. My entire life has now pivoted from what was I knew would happen to now I have no idea what just happened. And interestingly, as the crowd leaves Jerusalem headed to Calvary, we intersect the second person. Somebody we don't have a whole lot of information about, but we see threads of him and his name pops up throughout the, Old, the New Testament where we believe that this one day changed his life to where he gave his life to promoting the gospel and proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. You see, as the crowd moves out in the very next verse of Luke's account, in verse 26, we pick up a guy 
who doesn't have a household name. It's a person who wasn't a part of the story. He wasn't a part of the crowd demanding Jesus' death. But suddenly he's front and center in the drama of that day. It's a guy by the name of Simon of Cyrene. Jesus has been brutally beaten and he's being forced to carry his cross. And it's so heavy and he's so beaten. He can't do it. He keeps following and the Roman soldiers don't have time for this nonsense. We find them intersect with Simon of Cyrene in verse 26. As they led him away, they see Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. They placed the cross on his back and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now imagine this scene. He's coming in, minding in his own business. This crowd, some are angry, some are weeping. And there's this guy that has been beaten beyond recognition, carrying a cross. In those days, you know exactly what this means. This guy did something wrong. This guy is deserving of death and is about to die. And suddenly he's grabbed from the crowd and forced to carry the cross. And I love Luke's detail here. And made to carry it behind Jesus. I don't know how far he was. I don't know how long it was. But can you imagine carrying a cross as you see Jesus stumbling and falling? Luke then goes on and accounts for Jesus speaking to these women that are weeping over his death. You see the gentleness. You see him get to the top of Calvary and you end up, you've got to believe he stuck around, right? Like, what is going on? What is this story about? What did this guy do? And then see what unfolds on that mountain. I point to Barabbas and I point to Simon of Cyrene because I think everyone in this room can relate to one of the two. Barabbas knew that he needed saving. He knew he had no hope. Simon was just living his life, but he didn't know what was being made available to him. Which one do you relate with most today? Because I've got to believe both of them saw their lives pivot at the foot of the cross. You see, in basketball, I often teach kids the concept of the pivot by getting them to imagine that their foot is nailed to the floor and they can't move it. All they can do is spin. And as I was thinking about it this week, it's like, man, that needs to be true of me. I need to recognize that my foot is nailed to the cross of Jesus. Everything in my life pivots on Jesus. I don't want to walk away from the cross. I can't walk away from the cross, just like my car battery. I don't need my battery any less today than I did that day. I need it every day. And you and I need the saving work of the cross today just as much as the day maybe many years ago when you first experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It is the ability for us to continue to pivot Recognizing that there is one moment when we move from death to life, but there are many moments 
where we recognize that we, God is calling us deeper. God is calling us to follow him more. God is calling us to give up this or to follow him this place. Pivoting doesn't happen one time in a basketball game and it doesn't happen one time in our lives. It's, it's 